Guys, getting right into it. No time for introductions. Remember, Shuffle, we got our biggest get for a guest so far. I'm so happy to introduce none other than comedian Bill Burr. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of your work, man. Um, oh, yeah? <laughs> don't ask me to name a special, though. Tell me, you're going to talk about The Lord of the Rings with us. What would you think? What did you think of Fellowship of the Ring? What the, what the fuck was up with this movie you sent me? There's a guy. He's eating fish off the bone. What's his, what's his name? He's a golem. You know, he, he isn't a golem. He's not a, 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 a figure of Jewish folklore. His name is Gollum. Jewish folklore? He's alive for a thousand years. He's eating fish by himself. He's, and you know what? He's happier than I'll ever be. <laughs> well, yeah, well he's, he's, he's alive for so long because the ring gives him tremendous power. It extends his life. I, yeah, I figured he's alive for so long because there's no women down there. And no one's bitching to him. No one's making him go to the farmer's market. When are we going to go to the farmer's market? It's just him and the fish. That's all he's got. Oh, come on, Bill. That's not my favorite material. You know? It's Britney, bitch. And uh, the Iraq everywhere, like, such as. We sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Oh, Charlie! Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. I was going to get the show on the road. Are we done with the pleasantries? What do you think? Does everyone feel sufficiently pleasant? <laughs> Pretty pleasant. Swell. Swell. Nice. Right, so, Radu, you, you mentioned the morning was no good because you wanted to watch the World Cup. I'm glad you did that because I really enjoyed the game. It was great. It was really good, yeah. Definitely worth waking up for. Multiple comebacks. Um, yeah, no room for complaints from Americans about the low score line, etc. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing Ben noticed. He's like, nice, 3-3, good game. <laughs> <laughs> hey, would you look at this? Events transpired. That's pretty tight. <laughs> no, it was tight. Times Square right now is filled with Argentinian people and Argentinian flags. I only know because really? I have a friend there who was taking videos. Yeah. The entire Argentinian community of New York is out there celebrating. It's a good place to go to meet girls, awesome. probably. Are you guys going to hit it up? <laughs> <laughs> no. Instead of talking to beautiful Argentinian woman, we're recording a Lord of the Rings podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah, brother. He invited us to go to the bathhouse, my a friend of mine, and it was with a couple girls. He's like, oh, you guys should come. We're like, well, we, we're recording a Lord of the Rings podcast. <laughs> it's that meme of the guy closing the curtain <laughs> well the literally the sacrifices you make for for art ben and i were laughing like fucking idiots before mostly because the lions won but Woo! also because we were scatting the lord of the rings <laughs> the song it's so great <laughs> it adapts very I love well. This. <laughs> Found the outro song <laughs> for the episode. No, 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 no. We're we're playing. We're playing. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Is the outro song? Oh hell yeah! Nice. In, in the words of Quentin Tarantino, it's time to go to work. L lunch pail. <laughs> Put it on. <laughs> Zip up the coveralls. Get the lunch pail. Scamper up the skyscraper. Eye beams and, and podcast. Yeah, yeah they say our... podcast is the hardest job in the world. <laughs> but someone's got to do it yeah someone needs to talk about movies that came out 21 years ago uh -huh. and just say how good they were 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Remember Shuffle for your bi-weekly drop. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jordano. Hello. <laughs> Putting on a totally normal voice. <laughs> and uh, joining us for this extra special extended edition podcast <laughs> are two good friends of ours. First off, we have a return guest, John, who you may remember from the Batman episode. Hello. And making his first time of appearance, a good friend of mine, Radu. Say hi, Radu. Hi there. Nice. Electric. <laughs> and today we are talking about The Fellowship of the Ring, the first film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy that came out in 2001. So we're going to start episode the way we start out every episode. Why are we doing this episode? The reason we're talking about The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Fellowship of the Rings, is that this is a stupidly successful early 2000s franchise. This is one of the most successful film franchises of all time. Across the three films, it rakes in $2.9 billion, which if you look at the Wikipedia list of successful film franchises it doesn't crack the top 10 but there's a lot of inflating the numbers here is james bond a movie franchise with his 25 films is the mcu with his 20 something franchises a film franchise this makes 2.9 bill on three i wouldn't call them tight because they're over three hours long but on three movies and it's not just a movie that raked in a whole bunch of audience love but critics bought into it at the time won a whole bunch of oscars but this is a franchise that was beloved at the time by both audiences and critics very unique you look at Harry Potter and the MCU movies or James Bond, none of them are getting 14 Academy Award nominations. This is taken seriously by everyone and a lot of fun. Yes. So the intellectual property behind The Lord of the Rings had existed for over 50 years, but the 2000s has this kind of nerd renaissance that we've kind of talked about with the Batman episode, some of our earlier episodes. And obviously there isn't one film that you can point to to starting the nerd renaissance. There were obviously superhero films in the 90s, 80s, all the way back to the fucking 40s. But in the Y2K era, there's this convergence of incredibly profitable nerd culture adaptation movie franchises. So in the early Y2K era, you have Harry Potter, you have X-Men, you have the Star Wars prequel series, you have the first Spider-Man in 2002, you got Batman Begins in 2005, and at the end of the decade, you got the MCU. So there's just this efflorescence of nerd culture IP franchises. And I think The Lord of the Rings is one very profitable data point early on in this trend. And what it proves, I think, is that you can make your IP that you're going to turn into a franchise as nerdy as you want, and people will get on board. Because Harry Potter, the MCU definitely, is easier to buy into. But to have people accept Lord of the Rings and the fantasy that we're talking about, we need a mainstream audience, a billion-dollar audience, to accept lines like, I am the servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you flame I was actually looking for bad reviews of Lord of the Rings and a lot of people were like, oh, this movie with a straight face says lines like the dark fire will not avail you flame of Undune. Dude, you need to get on board with lines like that. You have to you, you have to accept where you, you're in a fantasy movie. I've never enjoyed a genre film at all. How do I watch a movie? <laughs> yeah, seriously, what a negative Nancy to be like flame of Undune. <laughs> they don't make movies about dogs anymore. What the hell? 
I think it's Udun. <laughs> Sorry. This is why is we brought ash. you on, Radu. This is the heat we need you to bring. <laughs> and yeah, I think if you compare this, which totally straight face says you're in a fantasy world, get with the program. This IP, one of the books was mostly appendix. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you are. You can compare that to the 2005 Batman that really, really struggles to do the gritty realism for the superhero shit. This movie takes a shit on your gritty realism. It's high fantasy. And the world that this franchise helped create of nerd IP franchises, it does so much to explain where we are today. I want to do a quick compare and contrast. Here are the most successful films of 2022 so far. They are all follow-ups to shit that already existed. So we have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Black Panther, colon, Wakanda Forever, Thor, colon, Love and Thunder, Jurassic World, colon, Dominion, The Batman, Top Gun, colon, Maverick, Minions, colon, The Rise of Gru, Spider-Man, colon, No Way Home, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, Black Adam, that's a spinoff from the DC Extended Universe, and of course, Avatar, colon, The Way of the Water. I just read 10 movie titles. They're all sequels of adaptations of IP. Now, just as an intellectual exercise, let's look at the top grossing films of the year 2000 before Fellowship came out. They are Mission Impossible 2, Gladiator, Castaway, What Women Want, Dinosaur, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Meet the Parents, The Perfect Storm, X-Men, What Lies Beneath. So most of those are independent, standalone, created for film IPs. So I think this movie is very important in terms of explaining how we got to where we are now in terms of what movies get made. And so that's the hook. That's why we're doing this. So you think it's because they made so much money off of it that they were like, let's do it again and more? Yeah, kind of. They're still putting out Lord of the Rings content. The The narrative of the past 20 years is the triumph of content over culture. There's They're making toys into movies now. There's a Barbie movie coming out. Battleship came out. Yeah, Battleship came out 10 years ago. I think there's a Hot Wheels movie in development hell. I mean, Clue came out in what? The 90s? Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was just proof that what you want to do as a studio is take an existing IP and you don't turn it into a movie. What you do is you turn it into a franchise, mm-hmm. into a world that you can sign people up to, essentially a subscription recurring revenue model where you can put out a new series in the movie every year. And if you can do it with Lord of the Rings, a movie which is fantasy as fantasy can be, invented the genre, then you can do it with anything. You know, you can try it to do it for Narnia mm-hmm. <laughs> and make some horrible movies. I don't know if Game of Thrones gets the big budget treatment by HBO without these movies and the general nerd renaissance of the 2000s. HBO gets cracking on Game of Thrones towards the end of the Y2K decade. Yeah, I mean, they canceled Rome because Rome was too expensive. Rome was getting a lot of critical praise, but it was too high budget. And I think it was just too early in the nerd renaissance. Yeah, they needed dragons. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. They needed dragons and magic and shadow babies. Look, Sega's Total War series was struggling under the weight of people's boredom with the historical titles that they introduced Warhammer Fantasy and what happens? It's the same shit. People were just desperate for a little magic in their lives. Lord of the Rings is really fascinating to me because I believe the original pitch was actually only two movies mm-hmm. that Peter Jackson thought he could split it into two films. And then they were like, why don't we just do this one book to one movie? And I think it actually is a largely a good decision. Yeah. People want to criticize, oh, you made a 20-page Helm's Deep battle into the set piece of an entire film. But you know what? Pretty fucking cool. Uh, <laughs> and another perfect example of the follow-up is actually probably the Hobbit series where the Hobbit's mm. one book, so you probably could have gotten away with one, but it's probably best served by two movies. And they stretched it out into a third, and I don't think they have nearly the same sort of beloved status no, uh, as a all. trilogy for a number of reasons. But I think being overlong, even though Lord of the Rings is very long, it is not overlong. Yeah, insert the Bilbo quote. Stretch too 
thin, like like butter <laughs> over a slice of bread. <laughs> so before we get to the film, the production, the themes, the analysis, let's just talk a little bit about the book about the yeah. source material. Well, we have one more point too. One one reason why I'm doing this because mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm getting into the halfling's leaf. You know what I mean? And I think the Lord of the Rings was the ultimate stoner movie for basically anyone born between 1985 and 1995. At some point, has either said or had someone say to them, "Dude, we should watch Lord of the Rings on weed, man." Extended <laughs> <Hell> edition. <yeah. laughs> and that certainly happened to me many times. I was just picking up on the fans of the books who were spray painting Frodo lives while they were dropping LSD and smoking dopes. Same fan coming back. Yeah, and the weed representation in the movie. When you start smoking weed, you get really excited about seeing people smoke weed in media, and you're like, "Yo, Gandalf smoking weed, man." <laughs> <laughs> He's getting stoned. Fucking high. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense. They are incredibly pretty to look at. Big vistas, awesome music. It's what you want. You've also got elements of vape culture there. <laughs> you know, Gandalf does like a giant like vape dragon. Oh, going yeah. Through Bilbo's smoke ring. Your love of the halfling's leaf has clearly slowed your mind. So let's talk about the book a little bit before we move on to the movie. So aside from maybe Radu, we are not lore heads. <laughs> we are reviewing the movie. We will undoubtedly say something wrong that <laughs> offends the Tolkien scholars of Middle Earth who speak goddamn Elvish and write their names in the Dwarvish script. Uh, don't correct us. We don't care. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> And let's just talk broadly about the source material because I think it can help us see why it didn't get adapted for 50 years. As Jordano said, pretty single-handedly responsible for inventing the high fantasy genre. Again, you could quibble because there's some Conan the Barbarian stuff out in the 30s, but this is the big one. The Lord of the Rings is one of the best-selling books of all time, period, full stop, let alone fantasy or anything else. And Tolkien took these concepts that existed, orcs and goblins and elves, and brought them all together in a shared universe with a society that made sense with all these different mythical creatures existing and so many fantasy franchises since have gone into that universe john you mentioned warhammer is kind of just an adaptation of middle earth a lot of people can just be like oh yeah here's our version of the orc elf men dwarf dynamic and the world has an entire history he he invented world building yeah to an extent right like spending time inventing a working language inventing genealogies because he wanted to write the english folklore right exactly give him a a, an odyssey so to speak yeah he was a medievalist and you notice all these other European countries had medieval epics, but England didn't. So he was going to write one. And the first step that he took was inventing languages. Tolkien's so fucking funny because he invents entire languages with their grammars and whatnot. And then he's like, oh, this character is named Treebeard because he's a tree with a beard. The volcano was named Mount Doom. It's where the bad thing came from. But they all have other names. Like Treebeard probably has an end name also. Yeah, that would be too long to say. J.R.R. Tolkien conceived of all this trilogy actually as one one book because it was one story one epic but he couldn't get publishers to publish it in one book so i guess you could say he was looking for one publisher to rule them all and in the hardback bind his manuscript i'm sorry (laughs) apparently a big part of it was the cost of paper post-war oh wow just way too expensive actually to get some of the books of that size printed when there was no i guess assured demand for it so yeah we almost didn't get this if people didn't even want to print it because he's inventing fantasy as he goes we also almost didn't get it because he served a World War One, so we could have just died. Yeah, the butterfly effect of history. This almost didn't happen. We're very lucky that it did. I think there is this 
aspect of the story that feels like it's coming in at the end of history. This world is lived in that's coming to a close. When they camp on a hill, it's it's not just some abandoned place. It's like the abandoned watchtower of Nardwar. And it, it, an ancient civilization is coming to an end in the book. And I think he maybe saw that too. And that still feels very relevant today. <laughs> We've talked about this on the pod before, how he's very funny because he will never recognize any allegories in his books ever. Never. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be like, no, 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 no. Nonsense. It's a book about hobbits. And... <laughs> yeah, there's no anti-war message. Nothing represents the First World War. He has contempt for allegory. And yeah, the Third Age is ending in the book. All the magical beings need to leave Middle-earth. So you have this very sweet, almost Ragnarok-style end-of-the-world conflict. And this movie comes to you in a decade dubbed The End of History. Yeah. Okay, so let's quickly summarize the plot of Lord of the Rings, and Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, just so that we can call back to it and touch on it, the movie opens with a very effective prologue about the creation of the rings of power from the various factions of Middle-earth, dwarves, elves, and men, and the first defeat of the Dark Lord Sauron. It really catches you up on a lot of the lore pretty effectively and pretty clearly through voiceover. Brilliantly done. Yeah. Covering thousands of years of history in like a little PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> yeah. Really good stuff. People are just like appearing at the bottom of the screen. And Holding up rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. We're then introduced to the hobbits. Short guys, hairy feet, who live this idyllic lifestyle out in the countryside. The hobbits are real townies. They're not curious about the rest of the world. They have petty squabbles with each other. You know, the Bagginses hate the Sackville Bagginses and vice versa. They love eating, drinking, smoking pipe weed, and dancing. They're your classic salt-of-the-earth country folk. And we are introduced to Bilbo Baggins, a 111-year-old hobbit who is, through sheer coincidence and happenstance on his adventures that happened before the movie, the holder of the One Ring of Power. And he wants to walk away from it all. He's tired of the Shire. He wants to write his book. And after the little catch-up, the first scene in the Shire is his birthday party. And we meet Frodo Baggins, his nephew, played by Elisha Wood, and Gandalf, a wizard who knows way too much and never shares the important information that he has. After the party, Gandalf realizes that Bilbo's ring is the Ring of Power, and he pieces out to go research it. He's gone for a while, but Frodo keeps it secret, keeps it safe, as he was instructed to do. Gandalf comes back. He comes back, and he's broken into Frodo's house. There's shit all over the floor, and Gandalf, it looks like he's been smoking meth all night, and he's like, this is secret! This is safe! <laughs> It's like, Jesus, dude. It's his last stash for a fix. <laughs> I saw you 10 years ago. <laughs> the religious right was right, okay? Pipe weed is a gateway drug to crystal meth. <laughs> <laughs> if any of you guys ever do that to me, you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> you just break into my house, leave shit all over the place. <laughs> cost me to tell me news. You know what? Tough but fair. I'll take it. <laughs> they devise a plan. So he tells Frodo to meet him at an inn. Because now that he's established that the ring is the ring... Gandalf needs to go talk to another wizard. Gandalf can't touch the Ring of Power because the ring is too tempting for anyone but a hobbit. The ring is a corrupting force. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, that old stupid truism. And the ring tempts people, even someone as powerful as Gandalf. So Frodo and three other hobbits. Before we leave the Shire, by the way, I think a lot of people's favorite element of the movie is the idyllic nature of the Shire. Just the idea of this simple life living in these underground bunkers with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> not having a ton of ambition. It always seemed like that was a, a place you could go in your head with a little fife playing. Do, 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 do. <laughs>
set it up, right? The music throughout Lord of the Rings, I think, is another big reason why it all works. The Shire stuff is just so homey. It, there's so much tenderness in it. Gandalf coming back and his whole exchange with Frodo and the, like, mean mugging him and then, you know, oh, so am I, so am I. You know, they're all very <laughs> tender. Him and Bilbo, there's this great love there and it's such a, it, it is a little small-minded in its scope, but I think that's why the rest of the story, actually, you can kind of give a shit about a lot of people walking for a very long time. It's the idea that there is something fun and something wholesome back home and the Shire, I think they just do such a good job of making it feel cozy. That's yeah. why I've heard a good argument that it is a Christmas movie. Uh, Shut the fuck the up! Shire Shut the fuck up! <laughs> no! I think it only counts because it's, Christmas is maybe the only day people are like, yeah, I got time for it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Right from that first line where Gandalf pulls up in the cart. You're late. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. <laughs> and then they, he laughs and Frodo runs up and gives him a big hug. This is what we're fighting for. Hugging our, our old pals <laughs> in the Shire. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's nice. I think it would be a terrible place to live, though. It's nice to watch. But when you hear about all the petty grievances... <laughs> the annoying second cousins who are coming to take your home. It's a matter of trade-offs. You spend a lot more time on that in the book, I feel like, than in the movie. Mm -hmm. They're kind of just name-dropped in the movie, but in the book, I think that's like probably a chapter (laughs) (laughs) altogether. They don't get out of the Shire for the first half of the book. Yeah, it takes a while, for sure. So, Frodo and three other hobbits, Samwise Ganji, his gardener, and in the film, the moron yokels Merry and Pippin, they travel to the inn where Gandalf told them to meet them. And en route they meet the ring wraith the black riders Excellent. Yeah, they make that noise. They are some scary. What noise, sorry, what noise was that? That was the first. Yeah, I swear to God, I didn't practice that. So I'm like, I wonder if I can fucking, I'm gonna fucking do this impression. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, dear listener. Yeah, they're these scary black riders with these long black cloaks that chase them down. At the inn, they meet this badass human ranger named Strider, aka Aragorn, though we don't learn that yet. And they continue on their Merry and Pippin way. Eventually, Frodo is stabbed by a ring wraith at an encounter and needs to be taken to Rivendell, an elven city, to be cured by them. And it's here that they meet the other members of the Fellowship. You have Gimli, son of Gloin, a dwarf. Boromir, another human, who's the heir to the regency of Gondor, the main kingdom of men. And Legolas, a way too competent elf. It's there that the Fellowship is called together and they hatch a plan to walk the Ring of Power to Mordor and cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom, where it was forged. And the Fellowship of the Ring has been called and so ends act one of this long ass movie yeah officially the dvd break on the two part two disker by the way the movie really breaks so nicely into three acts let's say we someone was like ah, actually we're making a three-part miniseries on television you have three perfect episode breaks yep yeah you have the intense drama the tension of avoiding the rig race twice it was so well paced yeah. like there's always something happening you get action you know every third of the movie really really good stuff yeah we've complained about movies that are too long on this pod before but lord of the rings is over three hours long and it's fine it's fine okay, i think that's the things that the maybe the other two are lacking is that even pace because there's something fun in every little section of fellowship of the ring now i gotta ask who's everyone's
everyone's favorite member of the fellowship. I was just going to say, if I could ask a simple question. Yeah, we got we to gotta sound off. Who's everyone's favorite member? I think my knee-jerk answer is Aragorn. Boo. Uh, I mean, he's the knee-jerk. He's, <laughs> Vanilla. he's an easy top three. He's an easy top three. I know, three. I know. But yeah. What's dope about Aragorn? Uh, just, you know, the whole destined to be king of all men kind of deal. He's got the interracial elvish <laughs> marriage or, like, romance thing going. Yeah, you know how hard it is for a mortal human to pull an immortal elf? Very hard. Yeah, very hard. <laughs> what has he got? He has an Asian girlfriend or something? <laughs> I was going to ask, since you are a resident kind of lorehead, why is the heir to the kingdom of all men just a homeless guy ranging around in the forest? Why, is, why th- isn't he king? I think because it's just been so many generations since Numenor fell. It's been 3,000 years, more mm. or less. I think my favorite member of the Fellowship, I'm going to have the hot contrarian take. I'm a big Samwise Gamgee fan. Tolkien's yeah. favorite character. One of the things I love so much about the book is that they are fundamentally optimistic and hopeful texts because they're from before the year of our Lord, 1960. <laughs> <laughs> or so. No, no, people were optimistic in the 60s. They're before the 1980s. And in this big epic quest to save the world, it's the lowly hobbits that play the most important role. And not even the hobbits, but the motherfucking hobbits gardener. <laughs> the everyman. You need him. You need him to save the world. And the guy threatens to drown himself in this movie rather, rather, rather than fail in his duty. He's dedicated. John, favorite member of the fellowship? Yeah, it's probably Mary. I can't tell Mary yeah, and Pippin apart. Which, which one, one is that two? one? Oh, come the fuck on. Mary and Doc. Brandy. <laughs> Mary one? is the one who stays with yeah. Rohan. He's the one who ends up riding to war with Eowyn. Should have helps got together with Eowyn. The Witch King. Oh, yeah. Climb her like a tree. Um, but <laughs> 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 they tag team the Witch King. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's really what you're talking about. And um, I actually always really liked Mary, both movies and the book, because he's a bit of a, you know, they are fun loving, but he's the one who's a little bit more mature, but he also grows into a much larger, a more worldly version of himself. Yeah. He's the taller one, right? Yes. The tallest hobbit to ever live. Yeah. He's, he's my guy. Yeah. A thing that the book does so great is that there's a chapter in the last one called The Scouring of the Shire, where the Shire actually does fall to Saruman, the Dark Lord's collaboration as wizard. And the four hobbits that we know and love become the guerrilla army resistance and Mariadoc and Pippin are the captains and they're quite literally taller because they drank the Ents water to make them taller they're quite serious and they have this leadership role and they have so much more character development in the books they get done so fucking dirty by these movies these fucking bumbling goddamn fools I hate it the Ents water makes you taller permanently yeah oh dude sick (laughs) (laughs) my favorite character is Legolas I love when he's like, the when he's, I'm muting, I'm muting Ben. The worst possible answer. I'm yelling into your mic. I just love it. He gets a shield and he goes down the stairs. He's like, could you, could you, could you? He's just people. And then he's on the elephant and he's just fucking skateboarding down the trunk. Like just bullseyeing people. He's, You're history's greatest monster. <laughs> Oilophant parkour. He has a beautiful bromance too with Gimli. Mm-hmm. Like both in the book and movie. Am I, I unmuted? Okay, sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, dog shit. The bromance is huge. He chooses to live with him forever. That's a very English guy in the trenches of World <laughs> War One kind of move. I'm just going to live with this dude forever. We're just very tight. We write letters every day. <laughs> We're crossing the ocean to go live together forever. <laughs> the they go on vacation action. together. They go to Fire Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only quibble you can have with Legolas in the movies is that he has these very campy action movie style things and he's just comically competent you can 
shoot two, three arrows at a time or whatever. It gets more embarrassing as the series goes. Yeah. Actually, the Fellowship doesn't have too much of it. He's really good with the cave troll. It just gets more and more Jar Jar Binksy as, yeah. the, as the series <laughs> yeah. goes on. Also, I need to correct you. It's not an elephant. It's in a fantasy world. It's an Oliphant well, with uh, an O. A Timothy Oliphant. Another primo J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> linguist move. <laughs> Nailed it! <laughs> Mount Doom, Treebeard, and the Oliphants. This guy invented two scripts for his two fictional languages. <laughs> Speaking of bad Tolkien namings, here's a guy who's corrupting someone with bad advice. His name is Wormtongue. <laughs> oh yeah, and his first name is Grim. <laughs> Yeah, Grim, uh, Grim Wormtongue at your Grim Wormtongue at your service. <laughs> Okay, moving on to Act 2. The Fellowship, they leave Rivendell, they're going on their epic quest, but they face obstacles. So Sauron has spies of various kinds, including this fire eye in a tower. So they can't go through the gap of Rohan. So they try a different route. They try and go over some mountains. But Saruman, that collaborationist wizard who can control the weather, calls in a storm so they can't go over the mountain. So despite Gandalf's hesitance, they decide to go under the mountains through the mines of Moria on Gimli the Dwarf's recommendation. All through their, their obstacles, Gimli's been pitching these mines because his cousin Balin was there. He keeps saying things like, my cousin Balin will greet us with a feast. His cousin Balin would not greet him with a feast. <laughs> <laughs> And so they get to the mines of Moria, but as it turns out, it's not a mine, but a tomb. The dwarves have dug too deep, and the mine is filled with orcs and goblins, a cave troll, and worst of all, a balrog, a giant fire demon from primordial times. And there's this epic fight in the tomb of Balin with all the orcs and the trolls. Then there's a huge chase through this mine, this cool-looking mine with no handrails anywhere as they flee this fire demon. And in the climax to act two of the film, Gandalf vanquishes the Balrog, but in the process is dragged down into a bottomless chasm. Yeah, one of the great things about this movie is that it has stakes. They kill off Gandalf. If you didn't read the source material, you might think Gandalf is dead. It's like charming, wizardly, powerful Gandalf, their guide. But yeah, that death hits hard the first time you're reading The Fellowship, because you actually do think like, oh man, they're fucked. This is, this is the guy who knew everything. If only he'd been more transparent with all the information he knew. No, it has stakes, because Frodo gets stabbed, and the only reason he's able to survive is because of Chekhov's mithril. When people survive a big intense battle like that, it's because of a real reason. And yeah. I don't think we get that later in the series, right? No. Everybody's going to survive Helm's Deep and, and... Well, the people who don't survive it, they only named characters that we would have had in the <laughs> books as like Hema, who is in the movies, but not really. Oh. don't make a mention of him dying. Who is that the elf uh, guy who no. shows up to die? <laughs> no, <laughs> that actually the elf army doesn't even exist in the books. Oh, uh, okay. So he just does show up to die in the movies. Yeah. Uh, dead Thor would like a word with you. <laughs> Boromir also right. doesn't actually die in the Fellowship of the Ring books. Oh, what? No, it's a, it, the books literally end on the cliffhanger of where they're split up at Amon. Oh, okay, but he he dies in chapter mm. one of book two. Like fucking Mister Technicality, John over here. It, it ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> no, that's different. They that's hear the, the horn of Gondor blowing and then cut to black. You know, and it's like people had to wait for another book to find out what was going to happen. Boromir, but it definitely works better, I think, for the whole flow of the movie to keep him dying.
Moving on to Act 3, end of our summary here. Everyone's sad that Gandalf is dead, but Aragorn makes them go on. They make their way to this community of wood elves led by the Lady Galadriel, who's this elven Madonna-style figure. But even she, even pure Galadriel, is tempted by the ring. Sidebar, this is the only scene in the film that I think kind of lags. Yeah, it's the only one that doesn't seem the most well-paced is this scene in the wood elf village. It looks nice, and I do like the scene with Galadriel becoming evil. Too scary. Yeah, Ben, it's pretty good when it's just exactly everything goes dark it's loud it's like more terrible and beautiful than the sea or whatever right <laughs> yeah peter jackson he is an ex horror b-movie horror movie maker and i think that comes through in certain scenes really well like the one with galadriel or even like the way that <laughs> fucking bilbo gets angry and suddenly turns into like, a little oh, monster yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, his most famous movie before this was like noted for having someone brain ripped out with a lawnmower <laughs> <laughs> so the fellowship they leave by boat and they're eventually ambushed by a group of Urukai, which are special orcs made by Saruman through mining and deforestation. In it, <laughs> but it's not a metaphor. Don't you dare say it. The climax of Act 3 is that Boromir nearly betrays the Fellowship. He's tempted to get the ring for himself because throughout the film, he's been frustrated and angry that they aren't using the ring to fight Sauron direct because Gondor has been doing all the heavy lifting for the Dark Lord. He's like Donald Trump with NATO. You know, when, when are the other allies going to pay their share? Gondor is doing all the fighting and we deserve this ring but Boromir at least gets a noble death because despite this one lapse he dies protecting or two of the other hobbits Merry and Pippin Frodo has the realization at this point that no one not men not elves or dwarves can be trusted to resist the temptation of the ring so he has to now go it alone he has this huge burden this ring is heavy the chain around his neck is digging into him because it's so powerful but the emotional climax of the film that Sam the loyal gardener refuses to let him go it alone. As Frodo is paddling away in a boat solo, Sam walks into the water, threatening to drown himself rather than let Frodo Baggins do it alone. And that's how the film ends, with the breaking of the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, fade to black. The Boromir's last stand scene is pretty yeah. good. Aragorn and Legolas just chopping through orcs, but it doesn't matter. They still take them. It looks great. I love the geography of that scene. The statue. The big statue. Very... Yeah. Yeah, and the fucking, the gore in this movie, such as it is, is so good. You see decapitations and shit. In the Hobbit movie, because they try and infantilize it, Looney Tunes eyes it or whatever, no one gets stabbed or decapitated or gets a limb lobbed off, but a lot of people fall off of legs in the hobbit which is fine the hobbit is a kids movie so i get why maybe they did that but they also tried to make it as epic as lord of the rings and it just didn't go together pick a lane <laughs> moving on to our themes obviously this is a very black and white movie it's an epic good versus evil hero quest there are good guys and there are bad guys fellowship good dark lord bad <laughs> saruman also bad but i think what makes it a little more complicated is that these hobbits add an element of depth right so you have your badass elves and men and dwarves Dwarves are these hyper-competent miners who have their mithril and their big axes and warriors. The men have their kingdoms and also their swords and warriors and whatnot. The, the elves are immortal and they got some magic. But who do you need? The rural aristocratic gourmands. The seven meals a day motherfuckers to show up to save the world. And it's not just the gourmands, but the gourmands fucking gardener. Mr. Potatoes. <laughs> you need him. We all have our role to play. And Sam even carries fucking from in a Christ-like kind of way. You know, they share the load. Share the load. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's such a great wrinkle that the hobbits, their true strength is this idea that they're not tempted by the ring. Yeah, because they're content, because they're happy with their lives. Everyone else is tempted by this power. And I think there are also some very heartwarming, hopeful moments in the film where we see Gollum, who we didn't introduce in the summary at any point, but Gollum, <laughs> this grotesque, corrupted hobbit who is obsessed with the ring. Gollum is following the fellowship because he wants his precious back. And Frodo said, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him. And Gandalf corrects him. It's this pity that stayed his hand. You know, you are not allowed to be judge, jury, and executioner of other persons. Boom. Lesson. Moral. Learn it. Read The Lord of the Rings. You'll be a better person. I am a big sap, and I think it's a lot of those sort of themes that really, as a kid, that appealed to me. It's a very good nature. After Gandalf dies, they, you know, they cross the bridge of Casadum and they get out there, and it's a movie that takes time in all of its lengthy runtime to really slow down and give us long shots of these characters just mourning, openly weeping in yeah. agony of the pain of their loss of their friend. It's incredibly sincere. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think by virtue of being an adaptation from something from so long ago, it avoids the, the cynical pitfall. Yeah, there's certainly no meta-commentary in the movie or anything like that. It's very sincere. You touched on one of the most touching moments, him picking Frodo up. Yeah. Another major theme of the film is, of course, greed. It's bad, folks. <laughs> you don't want to be greedy. So the reason that literally every dwarf in the Mines of Moria died is because they dug too deep. And what they were looking for was this fictional metal called Mithril. And Mithril is like the Lord of the Rings medieval equivalent of a bulletproof vest. Very hard to come by, but it's the strongest chainmail you can get. That's how Frodo survives being stabbed the second time. Yeah, in this universe, mining is really a, it's a high-risk, high-reward activity. So on the one hand, you have maybe the potential for a medieval equivalent of a bulletproof vest, but on the other hand, a primordial fire demon and orcs that will kill you and every everyone you know and love. Look, you so. keep calling it a fire demon, but I, got, I, I can't stay silent anymore. It is shadow <laughs> and flame. Like, it is not a fire demon. It is as much darkness as it is. The flame only gives some shape to the darkness, which it is. Just saying. Shadow and flame. <laughs> Thank you, John. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. Tell us more about the I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> <laughs> and not just greed when it comes to gold, but just the idea of self-interest being your downfall. The way that everybody touches the ring and gives in to an, an ego trip. Mm -hmm. Boromir, Galadriel, everybody, as soon as they touch it, their own want for like personal ambition and power overcomes them. The hero of the story is the person who can see past personal attainment. Of course, the most ham-fisted theme of the entire film that J.R.R. Tolkien would totally disagree with is, man, this shit has got an environmentalist message. Perhaps most explicit with the Ents in the second film, who are these anthropomorphic walking trees. But even in the first one, there's this strong environmentalist message where the dwarves dig too deep with their extraction. Extraction is violence. You're raping the land and they are all killed. And the Urukai, the super orcs, are made by Sauruman's mining and deforestation and industry. And you just have this desiccated landscape where nothing can live. They make it very explicit. They're like, we can't keep up with the production. And they're like, burn the part of the forest we're not supposed to touch. And it's like, thank you. This is very on the nose. And I understand as a 10 year old. J.R. Tolkien, once again, I've, I've said it before on the spot. I'll say it again. Clearly traumatized from his own experience of industrial mechanized warfare in World War One. He's not just happening to put rural England up on a pedestal. I think he thinks industrialization has gone too far. Impersonal dehumanizing industrialization. Another awesome, cool theme is some actual existential philosophical questions here. So the conflict in Aragorn's romance is that his partner is going to be immortal. So she is going to watch him age and die. And that provides a wrinkle. But they dwell on the problems presented by immortality through the elves, right? 
right? What do you do when you're immortal? And the answer is you leave Middle Earth at a certain point. How do you generate meaning when there's no death at the end of it? And it gestures toward this. I don't think they dig down too much into it in the movie, but the movie takes place at the end of the third age. So all of the magical creatures need to peace out. The elves are leaving Middle Earth. The age of men is beginning. And they don't really say why, which is kind of cool. There's no big apocalypse. It's not some collapse. It's just the way it is. It's over. One age is ending, a new one is beginning. What do you do in these situations beyond your control? It's pretty cool because even though our heroes triumph, their victory is still very bittersweet. Frodo doesn't get to enjoy the fruits of his labor. He doesn't get to go back to the Shire. And I think the book kind of implies, and again, we could read into J.R.R. Tolkien's own World War I experience, is that he can't just go back to enjoying feasts in the Shire anymore. He's all traumatized. He's got PTSD or some form of it. And so instead he needs to leave with Gandalf and the elves and the rest, leave Middle Earth entirely. Also, the existentialists believe that we create our own meaning, that when there's no meaning to life whatsoever, it's all absurd. You can create your own meaning through your choices and actions. And there's this great exchange, again, very heartwarming, very sincere, very tug at the heartstrings, where Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do we all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Which, if you want to summarize a fairly existentialist and super stoic view of life is there are some things that are beyond your control, but you can choose. You can choose what to do in those circumstances. Boom. Lesson. Moral. Gandalf the wise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more or less all we have to say about the themes of the movie. And they all come together in a thing that's really good. There's nothing terribly shocking about the movie. You know where it's going. It's good versus eagle. The good guys are going to triumph, but there's a little asterisk on it. It's going to be a bittersweet victory at the end of the third age. And there are sacrifices that are until You know, Boromir eats it. And poor Denethor. Who the hell is Denethor? <laughs> <laughs> Denethor is the weird king who... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, fuck that guy. Yeah, who yeah. lights himself on, on fire. fire. Yeah. And he runs 200 yards across the courtyard while on fire. He eats the chicken so weird. And the grape <laughs> the tomatoes. Weird. Just oh, yeah, like... Yeah. Just <laughs> all over his face. So how did we get this beautiful masterpiece of cinema? Yeah, what a beautiful treat that we all got. And it's so weird to think about how this happened. I'm going to start in 1978. A 17-year-old Peter Jackson is taking a 12-hour train ride from Wellington to Auckland. Who knew, by the way, that New Zealand took 12 hours to get across? It looks so small on the map. And he decides to bring the Lord of the Rings to kill time. And he finds within a couple hours of this ride, he is hooked. And as he's looking out the window of this train, he's noticing that the geography of New Zealand is shifting, acting as the perfect setting for his imagination in the events of Middle Earth. And he's just imagining the, the theater of the mind on the geography outside of his window and always wanted to make a movie using New Zealand as the canvas. And so 20 years later, Peter Jackson is a guy who is making 80s splatter comedy horror movies using the New Zealand Film Fund. And in the 90s, he makes a serious film that nobody saw, one of these art house films that does well at film festivals. And it even wins an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Sign of the Times, by the way, that an Academy Award went to this movie that nobody saw, which now they usually give it to wide release movies because it boosts ratings. And so in one of the weirdest stories of all time, this essentially second time director gets a $200 million budget to make The Lord of the Rings. How does this happen? It really all comes down to Peter Jackson. This guy was moving and shaking in Hollywood to get this done. 
he was writing it, rewriting it, bringing it to every production studio. You know, he was Ari Gold. Peter Jackson was Ari Gold, just a mover and a shaker in Hollywood. He was saying stuff like, call me Helen Keller because I'm the friggin' miracle worker. <laughs> See, I like to imagine some of Ari's most aggressive bullying lines in the Kiwi New Zealand accent. So it's like, we are about to get fucked. <laughs> Not the way you like to get fucked. The way normal people like to get fucked. <laughs> Uh, what if I told you I had a 22-inch cock? Would that be something you might be interested in? I don't know if anyone's ever made the claim, but maybe, just maybe, Flight of the Concords happened because of because of Lord of the Rings. One of them is in it. Yeah, Brett, yeah. Brett is in yeah. it. What? He's in, the, yeah. Yeah, Bre- he's in the Fellowship. Well, he's in the Council of El- Elrond. Oh, that rock. He's like walking out with the elves when they leave, too, I think. I think he's mm-hmm. a beautiful elf on the script or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's very clean-shaven. That's why you might not recognize him. Yeah. Definitely not Jermaine Clement. His features are a little too pronounced to be an elf. <laughs> so he, Peter Jackson, he's, he's moving and shaking. He's shopping the script around and he finally gets the Weinstein company to bite. And so, yes, yeah, so the Weinsteins were involved in this project and they're trying to get him to reduce the series down as much as possible. And at one point, Harvey Weinstein is like, I want you to make this a single movie. And Peter Jackson has to rewrite it as like a, a single movie. And he's threatening to replace Jackson if he doesn't make it shorter. He even threatens to hire Quentin Tarantino to do the movie. <laughs> I can't think of someone more ill-fitted to make the Lord of the Rings than the guy whose entire genre is built on making pop culture references. You know what they call a quarter stone with cheese in Gondor? No, what do they call it? They don't use the metric system over there? No, they're on the dwarven system. Yeah, yeah you, you know you know the epic poem, uh, A Virgin's Lament? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually about uh, enlarged members. Members, 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 members. This is woman, she's just getting members everywhere. Yeah, I mean, Lord of the Rings, I think, John, you mentioned it earlier. It has this huge epic score. Music is almost always playing in the background. And if this were a Tarantino movie, it would all be obscure 70s B-sides. He wants you, the audience member, to know that he knows. You'd have them talking about it. Oh, the great fool of a took line would just become like, fool of a... Common, motherfucker, do you speak it? (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice a sign in front of Rivendell that said Dead Hobbit Storage? What ain't that? Because storing Dead Hobbits ain't my fucking business. It's interesting that you talk about how he was forced to cut all the fluff and get it down to one movie. And that resulted in a really tight film when he had more time just as an exercise in getting it down to the essentials. Because that's actually how Guy Ritchie found his style is that he got his start by doing commercials. He would have to compress stuff down to like 45, 60, 90 second bits. And then he started doing movies, which is why his dialogue and his pacing is so fucking good. Guy Ritchie, Lord of the Rings sounds awesome. Much better than Tar- Tarantino, Lord of the Rings. It, yeah, it would be better. You brought a fucking gardener. <laughs> what? He's my gardener. You brought a fucking gardener on an epic quest. So is, is Jason Statham playing Boromir or Aragorn in this? Make him Gimli. <laughs> Never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. <laughs> I am a servant of the secret fire, the welder of the flame of Ondor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. <laughs> so fuck off. <laughs> Everyone there has the nicknames like they call him Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> Why do what? they call him the Grey? Because he's grey. <laughs> 
Nice. Moving on. <laughs> Over the years from 1997 to 99, the film has moved from two films, then Miramax and Harvey Weinstein forced them to make it one film, and Peter Jackson is scrambling like mad to find a partner that would go splitsies on the money with Miramax. And he found New Line Cinema, who agreed to fund half the project, and this would essentially allow him to make two movies instead of one. And then eventually, now that the risk was split between these two companies, he was able to push for three movies. So Peter Jackson had already written and rewritten a one-film version of this movie, a two-film version of this movie, and a three-film version of this movie. And I personally think that this did a lot to improve the pacing of the film. When you're forced to economize all three of these books that much, it's really a useful exercise for choosing the parts that you want to keep in and the parts that you want to focus on that will pop the most. By the way, the Weinsteins, monsters that they are, this was the feedback he got when he like sent in the original script. Harvey Weinstein told him to cut the scene at the inn at Bree and the Battle of Helm's Deep, either use or lose Saruman, shorten the Rivendell scene, shorten Moria by losing the Balrog and the fight in Balan's tomb. Great advice. Yeah, how, how do you keep the death of Gandalf while cutting the Balrog? You, like, you, you need can. the death of Gandalf for the story. How is, else is he supposed to rise like Christ? Or sorry, not like Christ. It's not any sort of no metaphors, no, allegories, no, no metaphors. <laughs> similes. Like Gandalf. No comparative language. And for once, the capitalist pressures on the movie production process are really good for imposing constraints. We found out just before recording this that the Soviets made a version of this film, and it includes the Tom Bombadil sequence. <laughs> Holy shit. But because they had to economize this movie so much, they left that part out, thank God. Yeah, I have to track down the Soviet version. Unfortunately, I just learned about it this morning, but it was filmed on handheld recording cameras. <laughs> send this to me if you find this. Tom it's Bob on YouTube, Bombadilla. apparently. Yeah, it, it was it was released in 1991. So had they made this movie a year earlier, they might have been able to save the USSR. I think the Soviet Union might have survived if yeah. they had an epic, inspirational, hopeful quest in the form of the ring bearers. Da, 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 da. <laughs> One thing I liked that I read after he sent this to me is that it said, Western commentators greeted its reemergence with comments about its gloriously rudimentary production. <laughs> Come on, man. They're doing their best over there. <laughs> No, I, I think it's, cinema it's, very taste, uh. it's said in the best possible way, I think. Gloriously ah. rudimentary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, nice. Yeah. That seems like a bit of a backhanded compliment. Yeah. But this movie, I think, is one of the movies that benefited the most from constraints, right? Yeah. This constraining of how long it could be at first gets you all the best parts. Those constraints were not there for The Hobbit. It worked the opposite way, where they had to stretch it out like too little <laughs> butter over too much bread. And it's like the difference between milking a cash cow and trying to make something new, trying to, to to test something out. Those constraints also make the movie a lot better when it comes to CGI. A lot of this movie was just filmed with forced perspective. A lot of these actors are the same height. They did that through camera positioning and that will age so much better than trying to make people short and tall with CGI. Yep. That is, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. The, the approaches that this film takes, and I say it looks so good still, mostly, in terms of filming on location, in New Zealand, single-handedly birthing the New Zealand tourism industry, I'm sure. <laughs> in terms of props, the costume designers created 48,000 pieces of armor, 10,000 arrows, 500 bows, 10,000 orchids, 1,800 pairs of hobbit feet serving as shoes, 
and 19,000 costumes were created for this filming. Peter Jackson could have literally equipped a medieval army if you gave him a time-traveling machine. He could have been some kind of minor lord with all of the gear that he made. But also, they had to do some CGI for some stuff. Oh, and they had all these models and miniatures for the battle scenes for Minas Tirith or whatever. A lot of the shots, they use a lot of miniatures. A lot of the Helm's Deep stuff, especially as you're going in and out of the caverns, when the ends Mm -hmm. attack, it's kind of fun to look back and see them as miniatures because it's definitely one of those things that the more when you've seen it a dozen times, you can see the artifice a little bit more. But Yeah, but the miniatures look a fuck of a lot better than the CGI. It's future-proof. Yeah, that cave troll looks like dog shit. Or the Kraken. Are you talking about the cave troll in, in Moria or a different one? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. The Balrog looks, considering how important of a set piece it is, it actually still holds up pretty good. Probably helps that most of it yeah. is Shadow and Flame. Weta Workshops, yeah. I think you touched on there, like is this one of the stars of making this work. Cannot think of all those, we talked about all the IPs and the franchises and stuff that this may have been a sort of precursor to, but which of those, the same sort of budget on physical location, on physical props, I think probably the, one of the things that gets that buy-in quick is that it feels like a real place. As goofy yes. as much of it is, yes. feel slightly real because you're looking at it. You could see Hobbiton. You could still go to Hobbiton if you want. It shines through. It really makes it hold up. Absolutely. And yeah, everyone took the wrong lesson from the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Everyone decided that of all those things that John and I just listed, miniatures, costuming, filming on locations. And yeah, when you need to, you use a bit of CGI. Everyone's like, so what you're saying is I need to use as much CGI as possible. And a big third act fantasy battle. Yeah. And it's crazy because I remember as a kid in the early 2000s, late 90s, I was so excited for Star Wars Episode 2. And I remember reading a story that said this entire film was shot indoors. There was not a single shot that was outside. But I remember as a kid being like, well, Tatooine was North Africa and Endor was the forests of the Pacific Northwest. Those films look and feel real because they were shot in real places. Coruscant doesn't look fucking real. Looks like a CGI hotel lobby. <laughs> but it does look real in Andor. <laughs> I'm not watching Andor. Motherfuckers keep telling me to watch Andor. I'm refusing to watch it. It was actually shot on location. They use a lot of London to make it look as fascist as possible. It's great. So what are some criticisms that you could, if you were a history's greatest monster, that you could lob <laughs> at the Lord of the Rings? It's super fucking racist. <laughs> There's no women. Oh, okay, yeah. You said that it's racist? I mean, Radu also points out there's, what, literally two named women? I mean, three if you count Rosie. Rosie O'Donnell? Yes, Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell, famous, <laughs> famous hobbit of Sam children to Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it certainly does not pass the Bechdel test, that's for sure. Uh, but, okay, counterpoint, Aon kills the Witch King all on her lonesome. She's a girl power. <sighs> man. Man. Was- yeah, strong female character means one that acts like a man, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what a strong female character is. Yeah. Hey, look, she's as good as a dude. I don't know. I'm being an ally here. I'm saying. She's a fucking warrior. Nobody <laughs> saw that coming, dude. Okay. Explain how the movies are racist, John. There's the idea that every single person is white. And you mentioned the elves. They can't even have certain characteristics. Only one of the members of the Flight of the Concords is passable as an elf. Oh, why is that? <laughs> why is that? Is there certain fucking well, shapes Jermaine of... Clement is like one eighth Maori. Oh, shit. Wait. Oh, no. Maybe that's it. Because maybe it's the shape of the skull that elves are all about. <laughs>
<laughs> you want to talk about even within the men, they're monarchists, but that's a different thing. But who's the really good men? Who's the one who can actually lead the men? Oh, it's the one with the super magic blood, the blood of Numenor. Um, the Dunedain, if you will. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe let's having a magic white blood guy. And okay. that, that's if you want to criticize. I, I that have a counterpoint. You, that is where you're going to run into some issues. I have a trump card counterpoint that's just going to deflate John's arguments for racism like a fucking balloon. It's not a metaphor for any real world people. <laughs> Boom! Roasted! <laughs> when I said the Haradrim were a darker-skinned people from the east, I was just talking about <laughs> a potential for a darker-skinned people from the east. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's definitely some... This was written by an old white man in England. It is unfortunate in the books, even, that all of the Southron races mm. collaborate with Sauron. Yeah, and they're sort of Muslimic-style aesthetically. There's like an yeah. Arabic nation that does. There's the various others that are mentioned in the books, but yeah. The Italians. <laughs> <laughs> they want the rings just because they want the jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is about nine white guys who go on a trip together. <laughs> All right, so I don't want to have the whole representation in film conversation right here, right now, because I'm not prepared to deal with it subtly enough. I will say, though, that whenever people criticize movies from 20, 40, 60 years ago, anything from The Lord of the Rings back to The Golden Age of Hollywood as being all white or too white, I find it a pretty banal observation or criticism of these films, especially in the context of the current discourse about what makes a good movie. I think of, for example, the online back and forth between Scorsese and his fans and some of the Marvel creators and their fans. So if you're not familiar, Scorsese says, rightly, I think, that MCU films aren't cinema. They're mere spectacle. You have flat characters without any meaningful development, you have predictable plots, shameless corporatization, and Easter egg teasing the next round of content swill for you to guzzle. But some of the MCU creators responded specifically with the criticism that Scorsese's movies are too white, too male, too toxic, pointing out that the MCU has POC-led and POC-directed films. And I think what we're seeing is the conflating of artistic merit and politics. Representation matters, of course, and it is good politics, because POC actors deserve good roles, and POC people deserve to have their stories heard. But I think it has to be in the context of good stories and good movies. So for me, one Jordan Peele is worth 10 shitty Marvel films. It goes without saying that representation and good art are not mutually exclusive, but I think that the MCU has just proved that anyone can produce absolutely forgettable CGI drivel. Yeah, I don't think The Lord of the Rings is somehow better if you just replace Aragorn with a black actor. That's not what I'm suggesting. I think that the issues inherent with the material are more baked in from not in terms of an issue of casting. Definitely I don't think representation is its problem. I think it's if there is an issue with that stuff, it's much more focused on the sort of, yeah, the race essentialism of the Southron nations and the blood of Numenor. I think that is where you could, if you're looking to criticize. I personally, I mean, I love Lord of the Rings and I appreciate that it doesn't need to be all things, but I agree. Just having having representation wouldn't suddenly make it better. You could object that the characters are pretty flat, but even or maybe especially when compared to the books. I've already gone off on how done dirty Merry and Pippin get, but they turn Gimli into a zinger machine. Yeah, that's true. He, yeah. He, deliver, he delivers all the laugh lines that he's supposed to be a noble aristocratic dwarf. Not the beard. <laughs> no one tosses a dwarf. Uh, in terms of it being like a simple good or evil narrative, another like element of that is that all the good guys are beautiful with fine features and all the bad guys are ugly and misshapen and grotesque. grotesque. Yeah. Okay. You know, we get it. You're This guy's the bad guy, right? Because his face is, looks bad. Like, oh, and John, you had a criticism, which how do the orcs know what a menu is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they start to maybe borrow a little bit too much from 
the real world, in, especially in the later ones. I mean, if you wanted to be an absolute pedant-ass dork, you can be like, uh, Middle Earth is meant to recall medieval Europe, but corn, potatoes, <laughs> tomatoes, and tobacco are all New World crops. <laughs> yeah, so much for the British epic, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's because British food was so bad that yeah. even in their epic, they need to bring in some of the New World crops. <laughs> I think if there's a real criticism, it's that they didn't include enough of the songs and poems from the source text in the films. Bro, oh, actually, bro, actually though, no. I know you're doing a bit. I wouldn't have minded a couple of the iconic ones. I think you could have fit yeah, them in. Yeah, dude. One of the only things I love from the first Hobbit film was when all those dwarves sing the fucking Misty Mountain banger. Over the Misty Mountains cold To dungeons deep And caverns old We Washing the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. That I did like that. The knives, bend the forks, smash the bottles and burn the corks. The glasses and crack the plates. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Cut the rock, trail and hack. one of the only times we actually get is it the only time we get no not the only time i guess there's a couple times at inns i was like do we get that diegetic music in lord of the rings we rarely see people actually playing no because it's always playing in the yeah background. like it might be the, the entire inns. movie is scored and it might be in the inns you get some of it but one of the most iconic moments is is pippin's acapella it's one of the more yes, like, yes. emotionally affecting action sequences that they've crafted in the trilogy oh that scene's so good and it's not in the books he doesn't sing for denethor in the books but when denethor is eating his meal all crazy after sending his son on a suicide mission and Pippin sings the song and it's oh, heart-rending. So is actually Eowyn in the movie previous. I'm thinking of it. Once again, another really strong use of acapella and just a really haunting sort of to give some real emotional heft to a funeral we otherwise don't give a shit about because I think 90% of the people who ever watch The Two Towers do not actually understand. If you ask them who Theodred was, nobody would know. No. But I'm hosting a podcast covering it and I have no idea who the fuck that is. Theodred <laughs> King's son. And I think if you were like a, a real cynical bastard you could complain about the simplicity of the good versus evil narrative a real world isn't like that real world's filled with moral grays and whatnot and i think this is a huge part of the popularity of game of thrones but i wouldn't say game of thrones is cynical and filled with grays i would say game of thrones is just nihilistic <laughs> it's just pure nihilism no but game of thrones has good and evil but there's like a spectrum right mm -hmm. the starks are good but they have their own flaws and weaknesses except for ned who eats it right ned is the closest to right like, you know, pure white hat. Nothing matters. Not even finishing the story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Did you care about this? <laughs> Hopefully you aren't in any sort of rush. I recently read the prequel source for House of the Dragon, which is a, a book called Fire and Blood, which is an in-universe history textbook of House Targaryen. And I just devoured this thing. It was 750 pages. I can name you Targaryen rulers in order now. I'm like a fucking Cimmerillion reader for the 
for the Germaverse. I got to the end and it only covers half of the Targaryen reign after 750 pages. And I looked it up and I was like, this motherfucker, it's unfinished. <laughs> he, I did it again. he did it again. I was like, Jesse from Breaking Bad, he can't keep getting away <laughs> with it. <laughs> He's going to do volume two of Fire and Blood after the Winds of Winter is finished. <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> I have one more yeah, maybe okay. joke I'll try to slide in there. There's sure. so few few there's so few female characters in this uh, movie. Maybe they could have should have called it the Wahhabit. Am I right, folks? The the Wahhabit. No. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I get it now, but it took me like five seconds. Still, I don't yeah. get the joke. Saudi Arabia, Wahhabism. right? So let's talk about echoes in the culture. This isn't really like a film critique podcast. Our main concern is mostly with talking about how does this fit into the 2000s? How does it still influence us today? And we talked about it in the intro, but the idea of like a big budget fantasy IP did not exist before Lord of the Rings. In the same way that J.R.R. Tolkien invented the fantasy genre in books, Lord of the Rings did a similar thing for fantasy movies and video content. We mentioned that Game of Thrones never gets the big budget HBO treatment without Lord of the Rings and we wouldn't have the Chronicles of Narnia movies I mean fucking, can you imagine living in that fucking world kill me now you want to talk about allegories <laughs> that's a fucking allegory movie the lion is Jesus whoa and maybe we'll get into one of the most recent echoes in the culture which is the Rings of Power series on Amazon Prime everybody's favorite 450 million dollar TV series yeah. that sucked it was banned it was it's, really bad. It stinks. It stinks. <laughs> this was a huge, a huge draw bringing Radu on. Radu is a true believer. Radu enjoyed the Rings of Power. So Radu, you have the floor. Explain to us why this boring, convoluted, too many characters, no stakes, predictable ass show that looks like a Canadian sci-fi TV channel movie is actually good. Uh, first off, objection, Le testifying, <laughs> leading the witness. I don't know. A bunch of that in there. I'm going to allow um, <laughs> <laughs> so I liked it so much that I'm trying to watch it again with my partner. Oh, no. <laughs> and if I could sum it up real quick, basically, I just want more in-world content of Lord of the Rings. So my bar is pretty low for enjoying this. Hobbit doesn't clear it, unfortunately, except for a couple scenes here and there. But mm. I like this because it captured the feel of the movies and also the books. So they didn't have the rights for a similar run. They just had to use the material that was in Lord of the Rings, the appendices, and in the movies. Still, they have to do things like make up new characters and sort of fill in the blanks a little bit in areas that weren't really covered in Lord of the Rings. It feels like Tolkien. It feels like Peter Jackson, too. You know, music's there. Beautiful orcs. Uh... <laughs> Look at the beautiful orcs. Yeah, the orcs look fine, I thought. The best orcs. They were beautiful in their ugliness. Exactly. They the best orcs. <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. They're grotesque. They're disgusting. They can't go in the sunlight. Okay, so the final thing I'll say is the dudes, the showrunners, are real Tolkien nerds. I don't think it looks and feels like Peter Jackson. I've only watched one episode, but the one episode I saw did not look good. There are very high, high highs and very low, low lows where there's a lot of green screen in, in the yeah. Rings of Power. Yeah, and I was watching this 
with my idiot friend, <laughs> <laughs> who I hope listens to this, although he hasn't listened to the pod yet. <laughs> yeah, he's been called out. Sean had the audacity to ask us for podcast recommendations without having <laughs> without having listened to a single episode of our pod. Oh, that was awesome. He's like, you guys any, know any good podcasts I should listen to? And we're like, yes, ours. He's like, I'm interested in like 2000s pop culture, movies, <laughs> books, music, that kind of thing. Sean, you appear on the pod. We hear you microwaving your lunch in the back. (laughs) But he was saying he loved how Numidor looked. He's like, oh, look, it looks so real. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. And it's not because of the visual element. Like, I guess it looks real, like as an object. But it's what Ben said earlier that you are able to tell when something is too fantastic to like, it doesn't it doesn't have like the weird quirks that something that you actually exists has that a computer did not generate. Humans are very, very good at seeing something that's real or, or fake. Yes, yeah, so it, it has texture, mm-hmm. little touches that be, it, it looks like it was really made by hand because it was. There's just a lot of details in there for lore nerds too. I just didn't like the characterization that much. The, the bonds between characters didn't seem at the same level as between Frodo and Sam. I can characterize Gandalf and characterize Bilbo and like talk about them at length. Okay, name three characters. Like, name some traits. Yeah, Some traits of the lady. Galadriel. <laughs> Galadriel? Is that Galadriel? Yeah, yeah young that's Galadriel. Young, Galadriel. young G. I'm like, I guess she hates crime or something. <laughs> she hates Sauron because he killed her brother and, and maimed her husband, potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a little Silly confused B. on what happened there, but... Season one, episode four, she spent a lot of time yelling at the Numenorians. I remember that. You fucking yeah. oh idiots. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what they needed? They needed Miramax to have them reduce it down to three episodes mm. and then go from there. They had to practice that exercise of economizing, keeping the only parts that you need and then building from the basic elements. And I think one of the big problems thing for me is that the Lord of the Rings keeps you engaged without shitty mystery MacGuffins. Oh, what's that? The show over relies on random ass things. Oh, there's that kid in the forest and he finds the magic blade or whatever and it's like, oh, I'm intrigued. Well, I need to keep watching to figure out what is happening, what is going on. There's a lot of that MacGuffin-y plot device whereas you know what the Lord of the Rings is about. But getting from point A to point B, casting the into the fires of Mount Doom. It is the journey, not the destination. Whereas the Rings of Power kind of over relies on the destination rather than the journey. I, I will say this. I loved most of the Hobbit stuff I really liked in Rings of Power. So. Aren't they not called Hobbits anymore for legal reasons? They're called like something Shire different. Oh, they're Harfoots. Yeah, Harfoots. Wait, they don't have okay. the legal name to the word Hobbit? Well, this was like, this was pre-Hobbit, really. The, the, these are supposedly maybe, they're made up for the show, I'm pretty sure, but they're like... Proto-Hobbit. They're, exactly, they're proto-Hobbits. <laughs> it's the Homo erectus to yeah. <laughs> to Homo habilis or whatever the fuck, if, but for hobbits. If hobbits were nomadic and were just hiding in bushes and nomadic things. hobbits, what a dumb fucking idea! The first line of the Hobbit, the book, is <laughs> in a hole in the ground lives a hobbit. They're sedentary. Have you read the source material? They have wagons with <laughs> round wheels. They got wa- they got a fucking wagon on these hobbit girls. Let me tell you. Oh. <laughs> My own. <laughs> One quick thing about the Hobbit series. We all hate, even Radu <laughs> hates yeah. the Hobbit. So, yeah. so that's how bad it is. If you read the book The Hobbit as a kid and you loved it, it's a great story. Bilbo goes on an adventure. He solves puzzles and problems and riddles. Riddles. He gets to the Lonely Mountain and some guy kills the dragon that had never been introduced in the 200 pages. It's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> you were probably not at the edge of your seat being like, when are they going to bring Radagast the Brown? 
<laughs> but somehow they did. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about the making of The Hobbit is that New Zealand doesn't have a union for their film production people. Hobbits, I think they're... But the, <laughs> <laughs> and after Lord of the Rings was made, very little of that money got back to New Zealand. And so before The Hobbit started filming, New Zealand was like, we'd like to unionize, actually. <laughs> you know, so we can make some money. And New Zealand got cocked so fucking hard because the studio was like, oh, you want to unionize? Well, it'd be a shame if uh, we had to film in Hungary. Actually, we really want to film in Hungary. So if you guys are unionizing, yeah, it's probably we're probably just going to do Hungary. And they were like, no, no. <laughs> and they, they, they got a bunch of political support to not unionize because of that threat. And it's like, dude, they were never going to film in Hungary. Like the, New Zealand is the hobbit we got a sweet tax break for the hungarian government all we have to do is say that victor orban <laughs> is the duna Dane. <laughs> he's gonna live to be about 260 <laughs> okay so let's let's wrap it up we got one more section here it's about reception why did the culture of the 2000s love this so much right to the point that it's one of the highest grossing trilogy of the decade and so at first i didn't even want to do this episode because this movie is very disconnected culturally from the decade it, it's not like batman where you're like oh this is about the fucking patriot act and this is about this is about terrorism but if i can put my sherlock holmes cap on for a second it's actually the absence of those cultural markers that actually shows why it is a reflection of early 2000s culture so this movie comes out in december 2001 a few months after 9 11 which i believe was in september and <laughs> I, I really do think that <laughs> September. You got me good with that. <laughs> and I, I really do think that 9/11 contributes a lot to this being such a massive hit. You know, it's a, it's a very overused thing to to say that oh, like 9/11 had such an effect on culture because and it's like these movies are escapism. I think in their purest form, right? Mm. The the world that it takes place in is a literal fantasy land that bears no resemblance at all to our own politically or culturally. You know, like. Dan Brown in The Strokes, it's completely apolitical. The characters are paragons of virtue and friendship. People say that after 9-11, we wanted things that went down easy. And what is a better salve than a story of good versus evil where the main theme is friendship? You know, and the world that they live in is so alien to our own that it cannot resemble 9-11 or the subsequent wars at all. Could you imagine how much worse this movie would be if like the orcs, as they're getting routed at the Battle of Pelennor, fields one of the orcs just like turns directly to the camera and says you said we'd be greeted as liberators <laughs> dog shit yeah elaborate. i just generally think that like i agree with you just in the way that you know scottish people can agree with you by arguing with you um <laughs> i it's not just that it's apolitical but it, it's it's idea of politics and its idea of the order of the world is very like you talked about it's black and white it's you're looking at two opposing things with not a lot of gray in the middle and you're looking at a world of western men going to war with the easterners to uh, establish a new world order in which men are sort of inheriting this world after the old world and old world order is dead uh, and if you're looking at a zeitgeist change i mean 9 11 really did end the third age um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it did end the end of history era you know uh balrog flames can't melt steel beams but uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, I just think that it definitely appeals to the same idea. Not just that it's apolitical, but that its politics are so broad stroke. Again, I think it's it's baked into the bones of the thing. I got a quote pulled up from J.R.R. Tolkien, the man himself. He has an essay called On Fairy Stories because people used to not take this shit seriously at all. And for a while, like, I think now there are fucking peer-reviewed academic journals of Tolkien studies now, but that really started, like, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like a good 30 years because people used to say it's a fucking popular fantasy dog shit whatever they probably didn't say dog shit because it was the <laughs> 1950s but there's a the quote from J.R.R. Tolkien is that fantasy is escapist because people would accuse it of being mere escapism that is not real art and he said fantasy is escapist and that is its glory if a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy don't we consider it his duty to escape if we value the freedom of mind and soul if we're partisans of liberty then it's our plain duty to escape and to take as many people with us as we can and I love this quote because in it the the pow camp that we are escaping from is life <laughs> life, <laughs> life is essentially a pow camp. so yeah it's baked into the thing it's exactly what people needed good quote and just to finish off i guess that point about escapism go look up the list of, of entertainment changes that had to take place because of 9-11 there's a wikipedia article on it and it's like hundreds of items long they had to edit hundreds of films even ones not in new york there's a lilo and stitch scene which is a cartoon about aliens in hawaii that had to edit out a 747 jet scene. Grand Theft Auto delayed the release because they had to change all of the police car colors from blue and white to black and white to not look like the NYPD. And Lord of the Rings exists in a world so alien that real world trauma is as fantastic to to it as orcs and elves are to us. There's no edits you will ever need to make. It's the perfect form of escapism. I, I think one of my favorite qualities of it on the rewatch was just how awesome Peter Jackson's vision of what Middle Earth should look like. He really had an idea of his head of all of these different places and how satisfying seeing the Wood Elf Village or the Mines of Moria or the Shire, I think most famously. As I said in the intro, I don't think you can point to this one movie and be like, this is why every movie is Marvel now, but it's one very valuable drop in the wave of the nerd movie renaissance that happened in the Y2K era. And of course, maybe we close on the dumbest reception of this film. All the fucking memes. Let's, let's talk about something visual in this audio medium <laughs> we have they're taking the hobbits to isengard a classic shit post song which a shitty like, electronica sounding thing that i've heard folk bands cover you have all of the different screen caps never thought i'd die siding side with the blank how about with the blank after all why <laughs> uh, why not why shouldn't i keep it what about second breakfasts <laughs> cast it into the fire no you cannot simply walk into mortar fly you fools you shall not pass if you are old enough to remember reddit around the year 2010 your memory probably just bombarded you with shitpost memories just now pretty awful was it you who pointed out to me that the star trek episode darmac at tanagra is this one of your original take it's not an original take i saw it online okay we are just hurtling towards darmac at tanagra being real through memes if you need to express an emotion or an idea you'd be like philip fry his eyes squinted in confusion <laughs> yeah 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 Yeah. the spider-man pointing at each other yeah <laughs> what does it mean what does it mean which one's what does it mean what meme is it what does it mean is the line that Captain uses when someone says Darmok at Tanagra. He goes, oh. what does it mean? Ah, yes, it is. Yes, yes, yes. What does it, what does it mean? Okay, sorry, it's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they encounter an alien race that only speaks through analogies. Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. I think technically they're metaphors. Metaphor. okay. <laughs> Fucking knowledge boy over here. 
It's fifth grade English. <laughs> Maybe my favorite, favorite shit post on the internet. There's a line where as Frodo and Sam are walking out of the Shire, Sam says, this is it. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. And someone edited that scene, repeated it in the film every time <laughs> Sam took a step after that moment. And the fellowship becomes 20 something hours long because it's 10 full seconds and they add it for every single step that Sam takes. Yeah, that's my favorite line from the movie. If I take one more step, it's the farthest away from home I've ever been. <laughs> it's funny when you try to do a, a rural working English accent, you just come out sounding like the peon from Warcraft 3. This is it. <laughs> yes, my lord. <laughs> yeah. The farthest I've ever been away from home. Work, work. Yeah, I don't know. It speaks to their towniness and how crazy this is for them. Their rootedness yes. to the place. By the way, two American actors playing Frodo and Sam. Pretty oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I feel like Brits steal all of our accents. Right. So. It's nice to and yeah, anything set in medieval times, always a fucking Brit. So yeah. fucking kudos to, to Elijah Wood, who was a big fan of the books and dressed up in a full Hobbit's outfit when he sent his audition tape in because he, he was like, yeah, yeah, like I know who Frodo is. Nice. I think the casting is actually, if you want to highlight all the collaborative efforts that made this as good as it was, from score to weta workshops to casting is up there. I think Syrian McKellen as Gandalf is... You can't, you can't imagine anyone else in that role. Every single line is just perfect, and I just think they, they nailed it top to bottom. I made me very happy, even though I don't like Orlando. I Blake. could take or leave Gimli. <laughs> really? You don't like John <laughs> Rhys Davies? I, th- I could appreciate that the performance is um, also the voice of Treebeard. You didn't realize that it was the hmm, same actor doing hmm. both. He does a lot of video game voice acting. Okay, nice. He's the only one of the nine fellowship members to not get a tattoo yeah. after the production process. They all got, they all got nine. Uh, yeah, the number nine okay. in Elvish. Yeah. <laughs> in Elvish. Hell yeah. Actually, Jordan, do you want to say your thing about the elf feet just so we can get it on the recording? The onerous makeup shit? The hobbit, hobbit feet, feet, right. Sorry, what did I say? I said elf feet. Yeah, been, yeah you've been Google. I, I saw your internet search history. Shit! Shit! Like we said, they had 1,800 hobbit prosthetic feet and so every morning, everybody who was a hobbit had to show up two hours early for filming at 5 30 and be glued into these prosthetic feet they couldn't be sitting down when they put the feet in so they all had to stand up for two hours before they started work so they could be glued into these feet and there's so many stories of just these actors being put through horrible physical stuff Viggo Mortensen almost broke his back or something John Rhys Davies could only film one of every three days because putting on the makeup and prosthetics would give him such a crazy reaction that it was hurting him and if we learned anything from Batman it's that torturing the actor is the only way to make a good movie. Only way. <laughs> I think Viggo Mortensen did break his foot when he kicks the helmet in Two Towers and screams when they find the pile of bodies. That He broke his mm. toe, so his scream is legit. When <laughs> Sam goes into the boat to at the end of Fellowship, that sort of climactic moment, they didn't clear the riverbed well enough and he stepped on glass and they had to pull Ooh, him out and refilm that. Surian McKellen basically broke into tears because he was like, oh, I'm going to play Gandalf. I'm not going to be some creature. No more prosthetic noses. And then they're like, <laughs> we're gonna put a prosthetic nose on you and he just brought it. yeah there's a long proud history of torturing actors stanley kubrick alfred hitchcock some of the greats absolutely loathed actors which is <laughs> the correct opinion to have thank you guys for joining yeah. us yeah if, if you joined us thank you for listening as we always say if you give us a like give us a subscribe give us five stars it really helps us out for the algorithm we're going to try and post every two weeks pretty consistently we're a real operation now we upgraded the gear we got documents we got google documents and then excel spreadsheets and analytics and everything so yeah give us a listen thank you for listening as always and you know we'll see you in two weeks and big thank you to our guests thank you to john and radu for joining us and talking about lord of the rings
Thanks. Thank you. Absolutely a pleasure. pleasure to join you guys. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.